Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, daughters, sons, or anyone else? You have in the city, bring them out of this place for we, about to, we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham 
and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger rose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word. And at times, your word is difficult. We don't know oftentimes how to understand some of the tragedy, the sin, the violence that we see in the text. But Lord, we trust you. God, we are in this place because we believe that you are God. Believe that you are the maker of heaven and earth. You've created us in your image. You desire us to live a life that points to your goodness and your beauty and your glory. And so Lord, I pray that you would teach us today, not just our minds, not just so that we understand these things, God, but would you teach our hearts by the goodness and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would drive out the world from our hearts and all of the ways that we are tempted to be entangled with it. The word says that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And as we spend time in your word, God, would you renew our mind and transform us from the inside out? Be gracious with us today as you always are in Christ, Lord. Teach us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Has anyone seen the film 127 Hours? Wow, I'm going to spoil a movie for you all in just a second. In the film, 127 Hours, it's a true story about a man named Aaron Ralston who was hiking in Utah's Canyonlands National Park, who while he was on a hike alone, no one knew that he had gone for this hike, Um, an 800-pound boulder fell, landed on his arm, and he was trapped, for you guessed it, 127 hours. For more than five days, Aaron Ralston was pinned with his arm under this boulder, trapped in excruciating pain. It was unable to be budged. He couldn't move it. He couldn't escape. No one was coming to save him. He was going to die. And so Ralston did the only thing he could think to do to save his life. He amputated his own arm. 
and it saved his life. See, in life or death situations, human beings have the ability to do remarkable things to choose life. And in our text today, in this story, Lot is the man who is trapped. Sin and it has become like this 800-pound boulder that is pinning Lot to the world. And he needs some help getting out. It's a life or death situation. Disaster is coming. And if he doesn't act quick, he's going to get caught up in the disaster as well. But he's so concerned about what he is leaving behind that he barely escapes with his life at all. And what we see in our passage is not only God's violence towards sin, God's wrath and judgment against sin, but we see his commitment to rescue and show mercy to a man who doesn't deserve it. And what we need today, what our hearts need today is what Lot experiences. We need to receive a rescue that we are unable to give ourselves. See, this passage picks up where we left off last week. Abraham had just interceded for the righteous people in Sodom. And then God sends this delegation of angels. Two men arrive to the city that the reader knows. Lot may or may not know. The people of Sodom may or may not know. But the reader knows these are angelic beings. These are supernatural messengers from God. And they show up to the city to witness formally the injustice taking place in the city of Sodom. And when they arrive to Sodom, Lot is said to be sitting in the gate. Now, the gate is the entrance into the city. It is also where the marketplace would be. There would be a big commotion, people buying and selling and trading there. But another thing about the gate of the city is that the elders of the community would sit at the gate and anytime something was going on in the community that needed justice or needed, it was like small claims court, right? They needed someone to weigh in on the situation and to solve their problems. They would go to the elders in the gate. And so Lot is among the elders. Now that's interesting because when Lot first goes to Sodom, he pitches his tent outside of Sodom. Then in Genesis chapter 14, we're told that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. And now 24 years later, He's worked his way up the ranks of society and he is one of the leaders in their community. Lot has fully integrated himself into the life of Sodom. Now these angels show up and they've got no place to stay. And in the ancient world, um, hospitality was an incredible virtue. Because to sleep outside in the wild of the ancient world was not safe. And so hospitality was this great virtue. And to refuse to show hospitality someone was a great evil. Job even says that if what is befalling him, all of the tragedies and and trauma taking place in Job's life, if that had happened to be because of a lack of hospitality, he says this, Then let my shoulder blade fall from my arm and let my arm be broken from its socket. 
If I've not shown hospitality, let my arm fall off. Now I know that that is the second reference to someone losing their arm. And I promise you, it will not be the last. It was such a tragedy, such a a problem to not show hospitality that Job's like, if I was guilty, then I would receive this. Hospitality is huge. So when these travelers arrive at the gate with no place to stay, Lot urges them to come into his house. Now, this is not just an act of generosity, an act of hospitality. This is an act of protection. Lot is one of the elders in the community. In the previous text from last week, we heard God tell Abraham that there is such an outcry in Sodom, a cry for justice, a cry of violence in Sodom that I'm going to go down and I'm going to see if it is all that I've heard that it was. Now, Lot is in the place where people would bring their outcry. Lot is very aware of what the people in Sodom are like, and he refuses to allow anything like that to happen to guests on his watch. Lot knows what the people are like, and so he urges them. You can even see the secrecy in his words. Come to my house and and eat and wash your feet, and then when it's early, you can get up and you just get out wake up early in the morning and, and, and leave. Because he doesn't want this to happen to them. What he knows will happen. And so the angels accept Lot's invitation and they stay in his home. And when evening came, it says that every man, to the last man, both young and old, they came banging on the door, demanding that Lot bring his guests out so they can know them. That is the literal translation in the Hebrew language. Now, some have tried to claim that this knowing them was an investigation of the, 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 the credentials of the visitors. Who are you? Where have you come from? Where are you going? Where are you staying? How long will you be here? And so many people will claim because of this terminology to know them that the great evil is a lack of hospitality and that's why God destroyed the city. Now there is a significant lack of hospitality happening in this text, but it's not because they want to know their credentials. See, throughout scripture, this euphemism to know someone is the way that they talk about being intimate with someone. Lot would use the exact same phrase when referring to his daughters, that they had not yet known a man. He's not saying they've never met one. saying they've never been intimate with one. And so Lot is trying to protect these men from the men of Sodom who see them as only objects of their pleasure. The objectification of human beings is a great evil. To take someone who is made in the image of God and to regard them as some inanimate object that only exists for your pleasure only exists for you to consume from them, to take from them, is an incredible evil. So Lot's trying to protect them. And how does he do it? He says, here are my daughters. Take my daughters. Do with them 
as you please. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I don't like coming up here and ever saying, I don't know. Carry this big weight on myself to have like the answers. I don't know how in the world the apostle Peter in second Peter can look back at Lot's life and say that he's righteous. I don't, I don't know. Save, but for the grace of God, I don't know how anyone who would do this could be regarded as righteous. And guess what? People try. Countless commentaries I've read this week, trying to find someone who would give me a justification. And it's all garbage. See, what I think is happening here is that this is a glimpse It's at this moment that we see that Lot has not only made his way into Sodom, but Sodom has made its way into Lot. Lot is acting just like them. His daughters are objects to be given away to save his life. Or not even his life, given away to spare these other messengers, these travelers. His moral compass may be intact in some respects. He may be more righteous than the men of Sodom, but his moral campus is completely gone in other respects. And so the mob gets so angry with him that they threaten to do the same, even worse to Lot when they're done with his guests, which is not investigate his credentials. They knew Lot. And so Lot's presence in the city, even as an elder in the community, has been entirely ineffective. He has had no sway on the culture whatsoever. He can do nothing to restrain the people. And so when Lot had been attempting to protect the angels, the angels now step in and they want to protect Lot. He is the one who requires rescue. So they grab Lot, they pull him inside. They strike the mob with blindness and then they tell Lot what they're about to do. They're going to destroy the city and they say, literally, run to the hills. Get out as fast as you can. Leave this place. God has seen enough. His judgment is coming down on the evil of the city of Sodom. But we'll ask the question, what was their great evil? We see what's in the text. We've talked about what some claim as being a lack of hospitality, but what was their great evil? Listen, the sin of Sodom is not a simple thing. The sin of Sodom is not a single thing. It is much bigger than just what we see on the page, but what we see on the page is significant. What we see on the page are symptoms of a greater disease, but there is a reason that the author of Genesis chose this symptom to depict what was going on at the heart level. Let me summarize it first, and then I will explain. Sodom is a community that has complete disregard for God, for his law, and for other people. It is, in effect, in full-scale rebellion. Listen, God does not regularly destroy entire cities in the Bible. But when he does, there is a full-scale, all-hope-lost scenario. 
Okay, think back to Genesis chapter 6. When the sons of God decided to cross their boundaries and, and non-consensually take human women to themselves and produced a genetically and spiritually wicked offspring. It says that every thought of humanity's heart was only evil continually. That was the result. And God brings destruction. But God is also willing to show grace even to cities who seem so far gone. Think of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. God's going to bring destruction on Nineveh because they don't know their right hand from their left. That seems like a ridiculous reason to destroy a city. They're still learning that like, oh, left hand, you know? Like that seems ridiculous. No, that is the way of describing. They are backwards. They are lost. They are confused and without hope and without help. So Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach that my judgment is coming. He's reluctant, but he goes, he preaches, they repent. Guess who gets saved? Nineveh. It is only after a a, 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 a warning with the people and, and calling them to repentance, as Lot is doing in this text, he gives them the opportunity to turn. And they're unrelenting. So God is going to bring destruction. Now, many want to reduce the problem in Sodom to homosexuality. Or they will say that it's because of a lack of hospitality. Others will say that it's not the the sexual perversion itself in general, but that it's sexual violence that these men are perpetrating. That is the reason that God is destroying others will actually point back to Genesis 6. And they will say that as the sons of God crossed their boundaries and cohabitated with human women, even though the citizens of Sodom may not know it, these men are angels. And so what they are attempting is the same crossing of boundaries. There is a lot, a lot, there's a lot going on here. Totally unintentional. So what was it? What is the sin of Sodom? It's all of it. Okay, it's, it's all of it. At the same time, it's more than that. It's so much deeper than that. There is always a sin beneath the sin. All of our outward rebellion, our outward sins, they all stem from an inward bent and rebellion against God. The lies that we believe, the the lusts that we harbor, the bitterness that we allow to grow, all of this stuff will result in outward actions and behavior and even inward sins that we believe are secret. Our sinful actions stem from sinful beliefs and this inward brokenness. Let me give you a for instance. Several months ago, I had a spider bite on my arm. It was right here above the elbow and it was the itchiest thing I've ever experienced in my life. I'm not kidding. I've never experienced anything like that. I was miserable for days. But it had this interesting effect on my nerves. My whole arm itched. Bite was here, but at times my hand would itch. And I would scratch my hand and like, why isn't this helping? 
because it was just a symptom of the problem. Just barely touched the spider bite, and it was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> so satisfying. You're not supposed to scratch spider bites. Don't do that. But it was, that's the only thing, because I actually addressed the issue. Sin is the same thing. We can scratch and scratch and scratch at the symptoms and try to tear them away, but it has no effect on the heart. What God wants for us, church, is not for us to change our behavior. What God wants for us is to change our heart. When that spider bite healed, my hands stopped itching. When your heart is healed, you'll stop sinning. It's fully healed, fully whole in all of the image of God, glory standing before his throne in the kingdom brokenness is gone. Symptoms will disappear as well. So many of our attempts to correct our sin is only dealing with the symptoms. And so what is the deeper thing? Do you know the Bible actually tells us exactly why God destroyed Sodom? Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride I wasn't expecting to see that there after reading the text. Pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel looks back on this and says that Sodom's problem was that they had abundance of resources, and that made them proud And they had an abundance of pride. They were haughty, which means so exalted in your own eyes and disdainful for others that they committed this abomination. There's actually a a rabbinic, Jewish rabbinic tradition, a teaching that says that the men of Sodom, in their affluence, in their wealth, in their luxury, they regularly uh, mistreated those who are most vulnerable so that they wouldn't have to share their prosperity with them. They're so exalted in their own eyes, disdainful of others, that they mistreat the poor, the needy, the sojourner, the the traveler, the immigrant, the person who's outside of their home. This is why Lot knows what they're going to try to do to this man, why he tries to step in the way and get them to stop. This is what they're attempting to do. They're attempting to mistreat them. And in their pride and arrogance and, and lack of restraint, what we see in the text is their preferred method of maltreatment. Not just the abuse of another person, but abuse in a way that I will get pleasure from. Do you see the evil in that? The objectification in that. The complete disregard for God, his law, and humanity. So we can point to the symptoms, the homosexuality, the violence, the lack of hospitality. But all of this points to something deeper. That Sodom represents the pursuit of life without boundaries. A complete, whole-scale attempt to defy all limitations. And a life without limits is essentially a life without God. 
Because God has created limitation and placed us within limitation, within our bodies, within our our lifetimes, within our energy, our strength, our knowledge, whatever it is. We all live within limitations. And our culture teaches us that limitations are bad. That you, if you just follow your heart, if you let it go, all of the social constructs and norms that you are being contained within, then you can finally be who you've always been made to be. Just let it go, let it go. I don't know all the lyrics to that song, but I do know those ones. And we teach our children this, that. Their limitations are bad. But the walls of a house are limitations, not to keep the family in prison, but to keep them safe and keep dangers out. Parents put their kids in a playpen so that they can go and do other things in the house without having to watch their every move and know that they're going to be okay. You put fires in a fireplace and not on your living room table. Because when we take things outside of their boundaries, houses and lives and families burn down. Societies are destroyed when we take things out of the limitations that God has given and just willy-nilly do whatever we want with them. Boundaries and limitations are a part of God's goodness. And so in this one act, the author describes a people who have completely cast off every limitation. Every boundary, every every good rule and law for human behavior is completely cast aside because they rejected God and they rejected people. And a life outside of God's good limitations produces sin without restraint. Lot is unable to do anything about it. They're brazen in their sin. Committing their acts in front of everyone in town. There's no shame. And even at Lot's protest, they care, nothing, care for nothing but their own pleasure. Now listen up, our culture is dangerously close to Sodom. When we understand the depth of what's happening here, our culture is dangerously close to that of Sodom. By historical standards, it could be said of us, as Ezekiel said of Sodom, that people today live in pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. While those who are poor and needy go regularly without, those who have more than enough are still stubborn to share it. This isn't 100% of the time, but it's there. We're haughty, we're exalted in our own eyes, and in our pride, we commit our abominations before the Lord, celebrating it in the streets. Like everyone should be clapping along with our debauched lives. And it's gone beyond sexuality or sensuality or violence. There is a demonic agenda behind all of this. It's the same old story, Satan dehumanizing humanity. And the way he does it is by making us believe that our God-given limitations are holding us back. It's what he told Adam and Eve. 
God doesn't want you. He put this boundary here between you and the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He put this boundary here because he knows if you eat it, you'll be like God. Satan is saying, as soon as you break through this boundary, you're free. You will be who you are made to be. God's withholding from you. God's holding back from you. Pass through this boundary, blow through the door, and then you'll experience real life. That is what Satan tells Adam and Eve. It's what he tells all of us. Satan is always preaching that we can be something more than God designed. But the truth is that God has made you more than you could ever possibly imagine. Made in the image of God. That means the creation is supposed to look at you and say, this is what God is like. It's made you more than you could possibly imagine. You don't need to pass through boundaries. They're part of the goodness of God in your life. And we lose touch with the goodness of God in our humanity when we try to live outside of God's limits. And in all of Sodom, there is only one man who even attempts to stand against the evil. And even his life is in danger of the disaster. The angels tell me, he says, you got to leave now. You got to get out. All hell is going to break loose. You have to leave. And this is the most shocking thing about the entire passage. It's not what Sodom was doing. It's not what God does to Sodom that would shock the ancient Jewish person reading Genesis. It's the fact that Lot knows that judgment is coming and he resists rescue. Do you see that in the text? How many times the angels have to tell him, get out of here, leave, tells him what's going to happen. And then it says, as morning dawned, seriously, you waited for morning, get out, leave. And then once they're outside, the angels instruct Lot. They say, don't, don't look back. Just go to the hills, run to the hills for safety. However, Lot resists again and he asks to stay by a nearby village. Sodom wasn't the only city destroyed. We see that in the text. It says that God overthrew the cities of the valley. Zoar was supposed to be overthrown. And the angels had mercy. God had mercy. They let Lot go there, even though he shouldn't have. And they spared that city for Lot's sake. But this, again, is rebellion against the command to save yourself, escape, run to the hills. See, this this story is ultimately not a story about Sodom. It's about Lot. Because God's word was written for God's people. And so we, as God's people, we need to learn from the man in the text who's trying to follow God. See, Lot represents the half-hearted person caught between the desires for godly treasures and earthly pleasures. He's half-hearted. God had blessed him, made him rich because of his association with Abraham. He's a participant in Abraham's blessing, but Lot chose to leave the land and live in Sodom because of its abundance. That's why he chose Sodom. He said, it's like the garden of the Lord. It's like Egypt. Egypt was the place where it had full of the worldly pleasures. 
Lot chose Sodom because that's where he could live the good life. Part of Abraham's family, knowing the blessing of God, but choosing worldly things. To the point that when given the option to flee destruction, the world had such a grip on his heart that he struggles to leave. And in the end, even though he was taken out of Sodom, Sodom was never taken out of him. And the result of his half-hearted faith is wholehearted rebellion in his family as his daughters. His wife is swept away in the disaster. And his daughters, even after what Lot tried to do, they still try to preserve his lineage by defiling him and defiling themselves. See, Lot had worked his way into the highest levels of leadership and social structure in Sodom, but Sodom had worked its way up into the highest levels in Lot's heart. And he can't imagine leaving it behind, even though he knows destruction is coming. So our world is very much like that of Sodom, and our hearts are often very much like Lot. We don't like leaving behind the sin that we've come to enjoy. We're addicted. Sin is, is like, I remember, I remember my dad telling me, my dad tried to quit smoking all of his life. Um, and I remember him telling me one day, he said, Adam, I don't want to quit. So that's why I haven't quit. I don't want to quit. He said, cigarettes are my friends. They're always there for me when I need them. Sin's like that. It's like that, that itch that you scratch that, that feels good but doesn't help. It's like scratching the spider bite. It only makes it worse. And sin, like cigarettes had the effect in my dad's life, will kill you. My dad died at 51. His friends killed him. Sin is killing us. And yet, it's so hard to leave it behind. It's familiar. It's comfortable. Let's be honest. It's pleasurable. But it's death. It's absolute death. Lot is slow to leave. Because even though leaving will save his life, he has to leave behind the comforts of his life. This is why his wife turns around. She lingers. She looks back. She longs for it. And she's swept away in the disaster. So many people resist the rescue that Jesus offers, not because they can't fathom having faith, but because they can't fathom leaving their life behind. It's comfortable. It's familiar. I should be allowed to live this way still. Who are you to tell me how to live? How dare you, Scripture, Word of God, tell me that I should live any differently than the way that I want to live. I resisted faith for a long time because I thought it would just make me a 
boring, no fun stick in the mud. I like the party. What I found out was that the party gets better when Jesus shows up. Some of you, some of you know. Some of you don't yet. It's a different kind of party. But the party gets better. Life gets better. You learn to detest the thing that holds you back from enjoying the life that God wants for you. That's why Jesus taught that people should deal radically, even violently, with their sin. He taught that sin was so deadly and dangerous that even if a part of our own bodies was luring us into sin, we should cut it off. There's the third reference. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, he said. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter hell, uh, sorry, enter the world maimed than to enter hell with your whole body. Jesus is using hyperbole. He doesn't actually want you to dismember yourself. Remember, that's not going to help. It's about your heart. But he's using this graphic language to teach us to get rid of it. Save yourself. Cut this out of your life. Like Aaron Ralston from 127 hours. Just escape. Amputate it. Be free. John Owen, in his book, Mortification of the Flesh, put it this way. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Get it out. Dig it up. Root it out. Cast it away. Shine the light on it. It's painful. It might be difficult, but get rid of it. It's killing you. So how do we do this? Some have actually taken Jesus at his word and amputated parts of their body. Don't do that. It's about the heart. Many will attempt to abandon culture, opting for a monastic lifestyle. They create this Christian bubble where they just escape the world, hunker down, and wait for rapture. No point to this passage is justification, but I want want to... I want to point out something that Jesus says, because this is the temptation in this passage, is just to to escape the, the world that we live in. John 17, 14 through 18. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The mission is not to remove ourselves from the world, Christian. The mission is to remove the world from ourselves. To get it out. Others will say that because our sin is forgiven in Christ, that we need not be worried about the sin in our lives because we can enjoy all that we desire and we call it Christian freedom, right? Christian liberty. You've heard that. Don't judge me. I'm free in Christ. I can do what I want. My sins are forgiven. That's not called Christian freedom. That's called licentiousness. You're using grace as a license to sin. Paul asks that very question. Shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
Do you not know that one who has died to sin can no longer live in it? Listen to what Ian McLaren said in the 19th century. If my hands are laden with pebbles, I cannot clasp the diamonds that are offered me. Unless you fling out the sandbags, the balloon will cleave to the earth. And unless we turn the world out of our hearts, it is of no use to say, come Lord Jesus. There is no room for him anyway. It's a hard truth. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said that we're so content like children playing with mud pies in the street because we can't possibly fathom, fathom a holiday by the sea. Just digging in muck. Clueless that God wants to give us something so much better. So if we're not to remove ourselves from the world, neither are we to blend into the world, then what do we do? We have to acknowledge and we must believe that we cannot save ourselves by any means of our own righteousness. We must receive our rescue from the one who is righteous. See, Lot in his half-heartedness needed the angels of God to grab him and drag him away. There's a force, there's a violence. It says that they seized him by the hand and took him out of the city and set them out of the city. It's almost like, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a violence and a force to it. And Genesis 19, 16 says that when they do this, it, it says, the Lord being merciful to him. The violence with which they were taken out of the city was the Lord's mercy to him. And for those of us who are believers, and feel trapped in our sin, or those of you who are here and you don't yet know Jesus, here is what you need to know today. God deals radically, even violently with your sin so that he can deal mercifully with you. God's wrath and justice is poured out with violence on our sin so that he can deal mercifully and gently with you. See, God's violent judgment against sin and yet mercy and grace toward you can both be seen in the face of Jesus on the cross. Any of you who have seen the passion of the Christ have seen a watered down version of the crucifixion. It's violence. It's ugly. It's disgusting. And if you look at the face of Jesus and and see God's violence against sin, then you also see in the face of Jesus, God's gentleness, God's mercy, and God's grace and patience with you. On the cross, the full weight of God's wrath for every sin you have ever committed, past, present, or future, came upon Jesus in agony. So that the life that he deserved can be given to us. The violence that we deserve on God on the cross and the life that Jesus deserves on us. The cross is the most violent and most beautiful thing in all the history of the world. More than the wrath of God against Sodom, the wrath of God 
against the sin of all humanity ever so that he can be gentle with us, so that he could be merciful with us. Jesus, in his wholehearted love and obedience to God, paid the penalty so we could be free from death. See, Sodom received the judgment that they deserved. Jesus received the judgment that he didn't. So that we could receive a rescue. And may we, like Lot, or rather unlike Lot, not be reluctant to accept it. May we not need to be dragged to it, kicking and screaming. Scripture says this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's that simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But it will take a lifetime You believe in the Lord Jesus, you're saved, God's righteousness is given to you. But it'll take a lifetime to learn how to live in light of that righteousness. You believe in the Lord Jesus, you're given a new identity, you're made a new creation. Your sin is violently cast away from you as far as the east is from the west. And you stand in the presence and intimacy with the Lord. God changes not only our eternal destiny from judgment to deliverance. He changes not only our behavior from wicked to righteous. He forgives our sins and he changes our heart. He does surgery on our hearts and he gets rid of the world that has intertwined itself with us. And sets us free. Don't be rescued reluctantly. Don't resist it. We, like Lot, we might fear what we have to leave behind. We also see something else in this text that we might fear. The entire community turns against Lot. You might have friends turn against you. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. Friends, family, people who you admire and, and, and enjoy good Uh, uh, relationship with, they'll look at you and they'll go, why are you throwing your life away for Jesus? They'll look at you and they'll say, why are you being so foolish? You have it all. Why do you need this crutch? First of all, what's wrong with a crutch? Got a friend who had surgery this week on crutches. It's probably a good thing. We're broken. We need the Lord to prop us up and carry us into glory. You may have people turn on you. Jesus in his high priestly prayer that I just read, John 17, he says the world hates them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. I don't want to lie to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Instantly. And it'll take a lifetime to live in light of that. And some of you are in that lifetime and some of you are discouraged. Discouraged with the world, discouraged with the world in your heart, the sin in your heart.
The Lord wants to set you free today. Look, if you are overwhelmed by the sin in the world, know this, Christ is not. He overcame the world. Okay, he conquered the sin and death in the world. And he invites you into that same victory. You don't need to be overwhelmed by the sin in the world. You can walk in victory through faith in Jesus. If you're here and you're discouraged by the presence of sin in your own life, Christ is not. He's not discouraged with you. He's not frustrated with you. He's not disappointed in you. His blood has already been shed for you because he loves you. He knew before you believed that you would still be struggling this right now, with this stuff right now. He wants to get it out. He's not disappointed in you. If you're here and you're longing for cleansing, to have your sin and the effects of the sins of others washed away from you, then I have good news for you. That is exactly what Jesus wants to do. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to wash you. He wants to heal you and restore you. He has glory for you, regardless of your past, regardless of what you will struggle with tomorrow. Receive the rescue that Jesus offers. Believe and be saved, be transformed from the inside out. I'll close with this. Yes, I will close with this. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified, which means to be made holy. You were justified, which means to be declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Listen, what you have done and what you are tempted to do is not who you are. You are set free. You are a new creation. And even if tomorrow looks like yesterday or looks like last year, even if you continue to struggle in these same areas, you have been washed. You have been declared holy. You have been declared righteous. That and only that is who you are because you have been united to the Son of God. Father, make this truth real in our hearts. We may know it intellectually, believe it through faith, but God, we want to see that truth transform us, Lord. And God, here's just what I believe about you is that you want to transform us many times through a process of learning to depend on you and repent of sin 
and walk in righteousness. And some of us need to do that today. And get on our knees before you and acknowledge that our life has been harboring things that you don't want for us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would give us the courage to do that. But God, I also know that you are able to transform in an instant. The leper said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You said, I will be clean. And the leprosy vanished from him. And so Lord Jesus, if you are willing, you can heal our hearts. God, that brokenness in our hearts right now that we are so aware of, that thing right now that many of my brothers and sisters are thinking about, that wishing it would not be there in their past, in their present, and fearing that it will be there in their future. Lord, you, if you are willing, you can make them clean. You can make me clean. You can heal us. And so Holy Spirit, we have nothing but to just ask you, would you heal us, Lord? Get the world out of our hearts. Thank you that you deal violently with our sins so you can be gentle with us. And so Lord, I pray, would you be gentle with our hearts as you heal us and administer the cure. And let us, as Christ has raised from the dead, Lord, let us walk in newness of life changed, not the same as we were when we walked in here. Purify our hearts, Lord, our church, and this community that we live in. We love you. We look to you in all of this, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name.